Revelation chapter four. And you might look up and notice, wait, okay, what about the verses? Um, the verses for this night are the book of Revelation. We're gonna spend our time there. There are a few verses that, that I'll give to you, but there were so few, honestly, outside of this book that I'll just state them when we come to them and you can jot them down and it should be hard to keep up with them. Revelation chapter four. Beginning in, oh, wow, I'm in Ruth still. Come on, Ruth. Revelation 4, verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately, John writes, I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. John is caught up. It's a very interesting picture. Was he caught up in person or in the spirit? Was he just given this as a vision or was he actually pulled up to see these things? That, that is unclear. He does say he's in the spirit. But John is there. And in Revelation chapter four and chapter five, he describes this really, truly remarkable scene in heaven. We talked about, actually, Revelation chapter five on Sunday morning, looked at that a little bit. But John is in heaven. He is caught up to be there, and we're talking about being caught up. And this is week number five, right? I was gonna do this all in one night. <laughs> There's gonna be a six, just telling you right now. There's nothing I can do about it. We just gotta stay with this and, and continue. I, I do wanna remind you all, we are not trying to develop a dogmatic doctrine. It may sound like that at times because I'm very confident in this perspective on the scriptures. But what we're attempting here is simply to look at what the Bible says and form our doctrine on scripture. Doctrine simply is teaching. We wanna form our teaching, our understanding on what the word of God says in its entirety. Not just one perspective or one verse or one passage, but looking at all of it. That's why this has taken so many weeks and why, again, here we are the fifth weekend still looking at these things. I, I wanna begin, though, with an article that caught my attention this past week. And I just wanna read this to you. Very interesting. It's uh, thesun.com, March 18th, 2023. Taryn Pedler is the uh, journalist. And the title of the of the article, which is, you'll see why it caught my eye, is Deus Ex Machina, or Deus Ex Machina. AI gods and chat GPT religions are coming. They're coming. The article says, as AI becomes more prominent in our day-to-day -day lives, it wasn't going to be long before the worlds of religion and tech merged. The thought of, uh, of robot gods and chat GPT sermons terrifies some people, and rightly so, according to experts. Wesley Wildman, professor of philosophy, theology, and ethics, which I think is just enough to really confuse a man, and he's also a professor of computing and data sciences at Boston University, he told The Sun that he believes AI will soon be able to perform religious duties even better than human priests and or pastors. <laughs> Thank you, because I was a little worried about being out of a job. <laughs> Not true. 
He said, AIs will write better sermons than most preachers, no comments, <laughs> give better Bible studies than most teachers, create amazing music and visual art for use in services and communications that struggling religious groups don't have to pay for. The likes of ChatGPT have already reportedly found their way into churches writing thoughtful and authentic sermons on behalf of the priests and pastors. Not here. Okay, I just want to make sure you know that if anything, if anything wrong is said from up here, it's my fault. Okay? He goes on, uh, it goes on and says, the listeners were none the wiser. Wildman explained that AI will have the ability to change everything we know about relationships with spiritual advisors and religious figureheads. He said, it will be like having your own personal guru, and you can take it with you anywhere. Which in the Hebrew scriptures, there's a word for that, it's teraphim, household gods, pocket gods. We talked about that in the book of Judges. Doesn't matter if it's technology or not, if it's a pocket god you can take anywhere, it's teraphim. Uh, let's see, where am I? He, he goes on and says, AI will have the ability to change everything we know about relationships with spiritual advisors and religious figureheads. I already wrote that, um, he, or read that. He said, you can confide in it, get advice from it, learn to trust it to help you to figure out complicated moral and spiritual situations. But this doesn't come without its own set of risks and dangers. <laughs> no kidding. Wildman says that just as human religious leaders can manipulate vulnerable people, which is tragic but true, AI chatbots can be trained by their creators to do the same. He believes that as younger generations grow up with these AI chatbots as friends, some even including holographic and VR representations, virtual reality, they will adapt to confiding in them and seeking advice and guidance from them. Wildman says the same process will undoubtedly happen in religious communities across the globe. He added, with AI bots designed to be trustworthy spiritual companions, the main ethical concern is how the AI bots are trained and whether they can be manipulated by mischief makers and evildoers to cause spiritual havoc. That is not my main concern. I, I read this and to be honest, my main concern is the entire perspective is missing the point entirely. That this is not about some religious experience and that faith and following Jesus has nothing to do with the spiritual advisor and, and, and you know, moral and ethical questions. I mean, yeah, it does affect our morality and our ethics, but this is about a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. This is about something real and tangible and actual. This is not about gathering together for an experience that can be projected on a screen or manipulated through the use of technology. In fact, the main point, and what I really want to start with tonight, is there are 66 books in the Bible. One revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the reason I continue to repeat that over and over is we cannot forget, we must not miss, that this is about Jesus and it is about a relationship with Jesus. It is not about head knowledge. It is not about amassing for ourselves all kinds of ways to think and function and act and be in the world, and it's not about everybody's personal experience. It's about a relationship with Jesus Christ, which is why the book of Revelation begins with this sentence, the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
That's the point of the whole book. If you get past that first verse of Revelation chapter one and dive into end times eschatological thinking and procedures and you forget who it's about, you're gonna really mess up your understanding of Revelation. It's him. It's him. I, I, I was texted earlier, and I won't say who, because I'm not, I'm not too embarrassed, but I, I thought it was a really uh, interesting text. So if you're here, may I share, but don't say out loud, because then everybody will know it was from you. <laughs> I don't know if this will fit in tonight's discussion on Revelation, but I was thinking about all the things left behind, specifically our pets. How many of y'all have pets? Beloved little furry creatures, yeah. And, and have you thought about that? Well, if we're caught up, and what if, you know, what if Bow Wow is left behind? I was asked that question years ago by my kids about our dog, Reggie. I don't know if I've shared, I'm sure I've shared this with you. I get in trouble. Cheryl's shaking her head saying, please don't do it, don't say it. I'm already in. I was asked the question, my kids said, what about Reggie if we're all caught up? And I said, don't worry, your grandma will be here to take care of him. I was just kidding. I was just kidding. Of course I don't think that. But seriously, what about him? What about, what about these beloved pets of ours? What about children? Because this went on to say, that it made me really sad to think about this. The scriptures do talk about woe to those who are young and, and nursing children, so there must be children left behind, which I don't think that's what that indicates. That just indicates that, because woe to those who are young and nursing children at that time. That's midpoint of the tribulation. That is Jesus saying those in Israel who are about to flee to the mountains, woe if you have children or if you're nursing, because that's gonna be a hard trip. That's what that's about. That is not about the rapture. The rapture's happened long before that. But, Going on, says children and, or, and pets left behind in empty houses with no one to take care of them. Slow starvation, abandonment, fear, darkness, and, and then three crying faces. And, and, and you know, my, my immediate reaction to that, and I, and I texted back, reminder, what do we know of the character of God? And I know that an awful lot of bad things happen in this world, but when we don't know the answer to something, and we know the Bible does not address pets in terms of what happens at the rapture, so what do we do? What do we think? How do we, how do we you know, process all of this when there's some sorrow to be had there? And my answer is you've got to trust God. Some would say, well, that's a cop-out. That's not an answer. That's the best answer that I have because I know Jesus and I trust him. And he's got this. I don't know what's gonna happen to the pets. I really don't know. But I'll tell you what, there's... <laughs> See, I'm just gonna get in so much trouble tonight. I, I, can, I already feel it in myself. I'm in trouble. Uh, I think there's gonna be a lot of people from PETA here to take care of them. <laughs> Let's just look at Revelation chapter one, shall we? God is good. God is gracious. He's loving. God created these pets. You think they're important to you? God created them. So they matter far more to him, and he's got a plan. I don't know how it's gonna work. I don't know what's gonna happen here. All I know is I'm gonna be gone, and there's not gonna be a care in the world. For me, I'm gonna be with Jesus. Maybe that sounds really selfish, but what I'm saying with that is not, oh boy, I get to get out, and they're gonna be in a mess. I'm saying, no, I'm with him, and he's got this. And I don't have to worry about it and fear about it and be upset about it, which is why, again, Paul said, 1 Corinthians 4, 18, therefore comfort one another with these words. These are words of comfort. 
The idea of the rapture of the church is not to distress us or upset us, but to bring comfort to us. Well, Revelation chapter one, verse one does say the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bond servants the things which must soon take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bond servant, John. This is still personal. This is still about Jesus. 66 books in the Bible, one revelation. In the scroll of the book, he says, it is written of me, I have come to do your will, O God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse seven. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. It is these that testify of me, John 5, 39. This is Jesus very clearly saying, if you miss me, then this really isn't going to amount to a whole lot in your life because it's about me, John 5, 39, yeah. So knowing him, trusting, believing in him for salvation, and ultimately... Coming to him, even as we are caught up. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not revelations. I'm gonna repeat that a few times, perhaps. It's not the book of revelations. It's the book of revelation. There's one revelation, Jesus. So we've been talking about being caught up by him and and to him in the personal catch. That was the first point. The second point was the power lift, talking about literally being caught up in 1 Thessalonians 4. The third point was the pre-trib precedence, and we looked at several of those, Old Testament and New Testament precedence of people being raptured either from one place to another, even right on the earth like Philip was in Acts chapter eight, or, or like Enoch or Elijah, literally caught right up to the sky. So there were those precedents, and there are many of those. We talked about the paideia, that is the children. We talked about the paralambano, which is that Greek word that means received unto, One will be left, one will be received unto Matthew 24. The word is paralambano. And again, I remind you, same word Jesus said or used in John 14 when he said, I will receive you to myself. I will paralambano you to myself that where I am, there you may also be. So we know what he means when he says that word. Then we talked about number six, the patient servant, those whom he finds so doing. That is actively, patiently waiting for him, but serving because we know our master's coming back. If I don't think the master's coming back, what do I have to serve for? What's the hurry? What's the rush? We got all kinds of time. In fact, if I actually believe in the other perspectives, we got all the time in the world. If I actually believe when Jesus said, the gospel will be preached to all the nations and then the end will come. If I take that verse and believe that means we have to preach the gospel to all the nations, Jesus will never come. Because every time we get to one nation to preach the gospel, there's gonna be a whole new crop of people being born into the world who don't know Jesus. The point is the world will hear the gospel, all people will hear the gospel, but it's gonna be through divine agency far greater than ourselves. We talked about number seven, a perfected or a perfecting escape, that first Corinthians 15 being caught up in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, and this mortal will put on the immortal. We talked about number eight, a being prepared for departure, and that word departure in 2 Thessalonians chapter two, and the whole idea that when the Holy Spirit is taken out, that we go with him. When we're taken out, he goes with us. That restraining influence on evil, if this is, hopefully this is ringing a bell. If it's not, I'm just kind of running over these things. And if you missed any of this, go back and listen to the earlier teachings. There's only, you know, four other weeks of it. And then number nine, uh, a peculiar treasure. And we spent all last week in Daniel chapter nine. A peculiar treasure, that is God's people. And the 77s, whoa. 
Is that necessary? <laughs> I mean, if it is, let it, let it rip, John, but I, you know. I know, I'm thinking, it's, it's happening. <laughs> this is it. <laughs> However, if it's in a twinkling of an eye, I wouldn't even know. I mean, we'd just, you know, I wouldn't be blinded. So, <laughs> so a peculiar treasure. God's people, God's peculiar treasure, Israel, and that whole time frame, God's clock we talked about last week. And I, I just, I love Daniel chapter nine, great place to spend some time. But tonight, we're gonna go with number 10 in our notes, number 10, talking again about the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. So each of these points are pointing to that, helping us to understand that this is pervasive throughout the scriptures. Point number 10, the pattern of revelation. The pattern of revelation. Look at verse nine of Revelation chapter one. I, John, I wish we could do the whole book. We can't right now. We're gonna get a taste of several aspects of this. I, I'm, I'm leaning toward doing a whole study through Revelation sooner as opposed to later, but for now. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. We know John was exiled there. And I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. By the way, let me pause real quickly and say John was exiled on the island of Patmos by a Roman emperor named Domitian. Because of the time frame that we know Domitian was ruling, this would put the writing of Revelation after 70 AD. So you cannot take, though the preterist will do this, you cannot take the book of Revelation and say this was all fulfilled in 70 AD when John didn't get the Revelation and write it down until the mid-90s AD. And that's something that if you just know when the Roman emperors reigned and what they did, and one of the things that Domitian was known for was exiling people to these small Greek islands like Patmos. So we can pretty confidently state that this would have been written in the 90s, not pre-70 AD. For it to all have been fulfilled in the fall of Jerusalem in 70, obviously it would need to have been written before then, and it wasn't. So, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, John says, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. So we're, we're getting this sense of, okay, God likes trumpets. Are you with me so far? saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. Hang on, wait a minute. How many churches were there in Asia and in Israel or Judea at the time? A lot more than seven. Just write this and send it to the seven, okay? To Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamos and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash, his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. His voice was like, and notice the use of the word like, 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 like. It was like this. He's not saying that this is, this is a descriptive, this is descriptive language he's using. So he says his voice was like the sound of many waters. It wasn't that 
and this is Jesus, that he opened his mouth and all of a sudden you hear a waterfall. It's just, that was the sound that, that impressed John. That's what it sounds like. If I, trying to come up with something to describe the voice that I heard, it sounded like a rushing waterfall. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Has, have any of you seen pictures drawn from this? There's a painting out there drawn, making this a literal view, and it's frightening. You know, even the thought of Jesus standing there, his feet glowing, his eyes on fire and a sword going, you know, in and out of his, that's not what was happening. But John is using this descriptive language to help us understand how overwhelming it was to see Jesus glorified. And he says his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. Wait a minute, that's God talk. That is direct talk from Isaiah. God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, and there is no other. But this one speaking to John says, I am the first and the last, and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Who is the one who is dead and is alive forevermore? It's obvious now, we know who John has seen, it's Jesus. Therefore, verse 19, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, well, let me explain. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Oh, okay. So there's something there that John is being shown that is representative of something else. Great thing about the book of Revelation is John always tells you when he's giving you a picture. Otherwise, I would strongly suggest that you just take it literally. Take the book literally, take it chronologically, unless John says, and then I saw a sign, or then I saw something like. And when he uses language like that, it, I mean, you don't need much of a head on your shoulders to figure out, okay, this is being picturesque of something that is literal. So take the book of Revelation literally unless John tells you to do otherwise. This book is not a hodgepodge of random end times prophecies, which is why so many people call it the book of Revelations, plural, because they think that's what it is. It's a messy, confusing, hard to understand, frightening book of all this random stuff, and that completely misses what the book is about. In fact, most people who say that have never really read it. They've just heard it. And I've shared before when we studied Revelation that one of the biggest lies of Satan in the world is that this is too difficult for your average person to understand. Au contraire. And if you understood that, you can understand this. No, it's not. It's given to, first verse, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. This is not a book that was given, a revelation given to John to be rolled up, tied up, and tucked away because it's just too mysterious, too weird, too bizarre. That's not our God. Our Jesus wants us to understand, wants us to know, wants to describe for us what is out ahead of us, and that is the book of Revelation. It is not here to confuse or frighten or upset or unnerve the followers of Jesus, the bondservants of Jesus. It's to show us the things which must soon take place. I know some of you are going, well, yeah, but soon was 2,000 years ago. That's not soon. Well, not in your economy, not in mine. 
But even in the language of must soon take place, intaxi is the word, and it means with rapidity or, or speeding up or revving up. The idea being these things, once this starts, are gonna move very fast. It's once been said that the, the wheels of God's justice grind, move slowly, but grind thoroughly. And that's true. And yet a point comes where God says, time to move, and he moves. Have you ever experienced that in your life, by the way? How you've prayed and you've waited and you've waited and you've prayed. And it's like, there's never gonna be an answer for this. And all of a sudden the answer comes so fast, your head is spinning and you're going, God, slow down. I'm not ready, there's too much, there's too much too fast. You know, and if you've ever experienced that, that's, that's what we're talking about. I, I love this about the Lord. He is so patient. He is so intentional. He will move slowly, carefully, propitiously in your life until the moment when he's ready to go, and then boom, he just does it. And that, I think, is what we're looking at here in the Revelation. Once it starts, it will, it will take off. This is not a poetic religious parable for religious hacks to be able to say, I don't get it, but God wins. I've heard that way too much, and forgive me if I sound at all judgmental, I probably am on this, but I am sick and tired of people saying, well, the book of Revelation is just about God wins. Well, then close the, the entire Bible and go about your, your happy, uninformed life. It is not just about God, he does win, I mean, yeah, but he won the moment he walked out of the grave. And what's out ahead is, is a remarkable victory to be realized and understood, but with this book, with this book, it's not just God wins, it's God wants you to know how. Wants you to know what it looks like. Wants to give us a vision for what is out ahead of us. Honestly, so when this life is difficult, when this life is hard, when like John, we are fellow partakers in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance and feel isolated and stuck out on an island somewhere, we'd be in this case, that we can go, you know what? It may be really hard right now, but I know what's coming. There's a kingdom coming. You may say, my life on this earth so far, my job success hasn't been great. You're not at your job yet. That starts in the kingdom. This is all just preparation. So you're in college, man. <laughs> he gives us a vision for what's out ahead. Because honestly, for many people, without that vision, you get to the end of your career and you kind of go, that was it? I mean, that's what it was all for? I remember when Sharon and I got married, and forgive me for rabbit trailing, but I figure we got next week and perhaps a week after that. When Sharon and I got married, the preparation leading up to it, you know, months upon months of planning and, and, and getting the invitations out and, and, you know, Cheryl finding the right dress, I, I picked out the hat, really cool 80s hat and, and all the prep that went into it and we got to the day of the wedding and the whole day you know all and the night before and everything and then the wedding started 20 minutes later it was over and I'm like that's it I'm like well all right let's get out of here what I mean 20 minutes pfft, done and, and so many people end up at the end of life or even at some point in life going well I did that I did that I did that and well now what well, Jesus gives us the now what in the book of Revelation. So that it doesn't matter where you are in life, whether you're at the front end or at the, what you would consider maybe the tail end of, of, of this life, of this first, you know, go at it. It's irrelevant because we know what's out ahead. 
and we know what we're heading to, and we know we're working to something that is fantastic. The book of Revelation, Revelation is apocalypsis. In the Greek, apocalypsis means unveiling. This is the book of unveiling. This is the, not the book of mystery and confusion. Unveiling, calupto is the word that means to cover or conceal. This is not the calypso or the calupto. It is the apocalypsis. And apo means remove. So remove the concealing, remove the cover. Take the cover off and take a look. That's the book of Revelation. Now again, God has won. But this singular revelation of Jesus Christ is given to us to understand who he is, now especially, to understand what he has done and what he is currently doing, and finally, to know what he's about to do. It's all about Jesus. And the Lord even lays down for us a three-part outline. If you know this stuff, just permit me, you know, just be patient with me to go over a few of these things because they're so important to know. We have an outline for the entire book that is embedded in the book. Revelation chapter one, verse 19, look at it again. Jesus tells John, therefore, write the things which you have seen, part one, and then the things which are, part two, and the things which will take place after these things. This is a very intentional outline for the entire book of Revelation in three parts. Write what you've seen, write the things that are, write the things that will take place after these things. When Jesus speaks, and we've been over this many times, he is intentional. He doesn't just rattle off. You know, for us, when, when, we, when we share things, we will say, I mean, I will use voluminous sentences to get one little idea out. If Jesus speaks one idea, it's the whole thing. If he speaks a volume of things, they all are significant and matter. None of them are random thoughts with Jesus. So when he says this, this is very specific. This is the outline Let's think about it for a second. Write the things which you have seen, part one. What has John seen? Now, if you just limit yourself to the book, what at this point when John says, write the things which you have seen, what has John seen? Jesus. Seen Jesus glorified in the middle of the lampstands. Write that down, John. So he did, chapter one. Write the things which you have seen. Seven golden lampstands, there in the middle of the lampstands is Jesus. The lampstands are the church. There's Jesus in the midst of the church. Write that down. That's chapter one. And then part two, and by the way, you can, you can, if you wanna note this for the outline, it's Revelation chapter one, part one is the person of Jesus Christ. Write the things which you have seen, the person of Jesus Christ. Secondly, write the things which are, and this would be the people of Jesus Christ. This is Revelation chapter two and three. This is so interesting to me. And, and again, remember, he was told to write it to the seven churches. Of all the churches, write to these seven. These seven specifically. Why, Lord? Well, we'll get there. But he says, write it to these. And so John in chapters two and three of the book of Revelation is given to write seven letters to seven actual historical churches along a Roman postal route in Asia Minor, we know where, the, where these cities were. We can point to them. You can look at them on a Bible map, just track them around, seven that were along this route. But each one, while historical, literal cities with historical, literal churches who received this letter, I believe literally all seven would have, but it ended up obviously circulated around the entirety of the church. 
But it goes to these seven because it's more than historical. It is prophetic. And once you start to dive into the prophecy of this, it's unmistakable. Write the things which are. What are the things for John which are? And in that moment, the mid-90s AD, what are the things which are? The church age. The people of Jesus. John is part of that. We are too, by the way. We're still in that. We share that with John, that we are all in the church age together. It's just he was at the very front end of it, we're at the tail end. But it's still the church age, the people of Jesus Christ. The things which are is present tense because John was at the time in the church age. The things which are continues from John all the way up to this very moment. But again, why these seven churches? Jesus didn't address the Jerusalem church. He didn't address the church in Antioch or the church in Caesarea or the church in Capernaum. He said, no, no, these seven specifically. And again, if you read through the letters, you will find this wonderful truth that each one is addressed to a successive stage of the church prophetically across the last 2,000 years. Now, when I first say that without any evidence of that, the reaction could be, all right, that sounds a little weird. Sounds like, Rick, you're really going kind of uh, you know, metaphorical on us rather than sticking to the literal word that you always tell us to stick to. Well, then let's be literal. The church of Ephesus, the name Ephesus means darling or desirable one. It can also be translated darling overseer. And so I submit to you, process this with me, that this is the apostolic church that the letter to the church of Ephesus also was a letter to the church of 30 to 100 AD. Now again, if you're saying, okay, why would you think that? Well, then we go to the next church in the list along the postal route. We arrive at Smyrna, and Smyrna means myrrh. Myrrh, and, and this is the persecuted church. The persecuted church, now from about 100 to 312 AD, the darling church, that first century, kind of the church being birthed and honeymooning out and spreading out and popping up everywhere just long enough until the persecution really started to hit and hit strong. Smyrna means myrrh. What does myrrh have to do with persecution? The only way to get the sweet scent of myrrh is to crush. So they would take these, these droplets of myrrh and wait till they harden and crystallize and they would take those and crush them and that's how you get the scent. So this is the crushed church. Pergamus, it starts to get a little more intense. Pergamus means objectionable marriage. It also means earthly marriage. Pergamus means marriage. This would be the state church. Right around 312 to 606 AD is the state church. This marriage of church and state, which is why 200 plus years ago, Thomas Jefferson said, I guarantee you a separation of church and state. Which, by the way, was not to keep the church out of the state. It was to keep the state out of the church. And we're seeing right now the state's overreach to the church and to things of the church is massive. And it is unconstitutional. But that's another conversation for another time. The state church was the marriage of Christianity in Rome with the Roman government, and that's where paganism really started to take a foothold in Christian churches. And that's why this marriage of state and church is objectionable to Jesus. 
I will tell you this about the first three churches, they are all rooted in the history of the church, but prophetically, the, fat, the last four churches all are in play today, though they had a beginning earlier on. And what I mean by that is if you look at Thyatira, the next church, coming out of the state church, we have Thyatira, which interestingly means perpetual sacrifice, which if you're Catholic, you know, is the mass. The Catholic mass is a perpetual sacrifice. It's an ongoing thing, Jesus dying every time the mass is taken. Every time the, the bread goes in, it becomes the literal body of Christ and he's sacrificed over and over and over again. It's perpetual. And it's so fascinating that now this, this church, why this church, Jesus? Because, because Thyatira means perpetual sacrifice. This would be, my friends, the idolatrous church, 606 AD, all the way up until right now. Right now. I'll, I'll show you why I believe that later. And then you come to Sardis. Sardis in the list. Sardis translates remnant. Remnant. This is what I would call the denominational church. This would be 1520, up until and continuing right now in present day. So, so still going on, the denominational church. You could also say, no offense intended, the dead church. And I'll show you why I think that. Philadelphia in the list, we come to Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love. Philadelphia means brotherly love, the faithful church. Suddenly in 1750, roughly around that time frame, all the way to the present, the church began this massive move of missions, world missions. Started to reach out beyond our own borders. And we see several, there's so many great stories of, of great missionaries back in the 1700s through the 18 and 1900s, all the way up until present day, there is still that mentality. We have that mentality here at the bridge, and I've said many times, if I was gonna be any church of the seven, I'd wanna be Philadelphia. I wanna be the church of brotherly love. I wanna be the mission-oriented church. I wanna be the church that is getting the word out. Not because I think that we will conquer the world for Jesus, but we have a great commission. And by the way, it's, it's a commission that is all the more innervated by the fact that we don't know the day or the hour. So I am more motivated to see the word get out than I would be otherwise Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love, the faithful church, 1750, and still in play today. And then Laodicea. Laodicea is perhaps, the, the meaning of this city is to me the most fascinating. Laodicea means the people's rights. Church of the people's rights. Church done the way we want to do it. This is the lukewarm church. And we saw this beginning roughly 1900 up until now. Now, there's a whole lot more I can tell you about that. When we study through Revelation, we'll take the time week to week to look at each one, and why would you think all of this? But John is told in this outline to write the things which you have seen. He saw the person of Jesus Christ. Write the things which are, that are in play right now, John, and are still in play to this very day, and that is Revelation 2 and 3, the people of Jesus Christ, the church. But then John is given the third part of the outline. It's where I want you to hone in. Focus in on this and write the things which will take place after these things. If you've studied through this with me before, you know this is a huge phrase. This is the phrase that moves you through the entire book of Revelation. After these things is English, the Greek is metatauta. 
Metatauta is, is like the gasoline, if you will, of the book of Revelation. It's, it's what fuels you to go forward. And John uses this word a number of times, this two-word phrase, after these things to let you know, okay, now that's done and we're moving on to this next thing. But Jesus says right here in verse 19, write the things which will take place after these things. After what things? Well, after you've seen the person of Jesus Christ in his glory, after the people of Jesus Christ, now you're gonna talk about, you're gonna, you're gonna write about the plan of Jesus Christ. The plan of Jesus Christ. The person, the people, and the plan. This is where it, it gets to where we're gonna relate to what does all this have to do with a pre-tribulation rapture? All of that backing up to say this one thing. Look at chapter four again, verse one. How does the, the chapter begin? After these things, if your Bible says after this, that's the phrase metatauta. So for the first time since Jesus said, write the things which will take place after these things, in chapter four, verse one, he says, metatauta, after these things. Remember I said after these things? So John now writes, after these things. If you happen to miss that and think, well, maybe it was just, you know, random that he says it here. He says, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here. I will show you what must take place. And he says it again after these things. So it's absolutely clear that verse one of chapter four is the after these things and following that John is to write as the third part of this outline. Write the things which are, you've seen, or which you've seen, you saw me. John, write the things which are, chapters two and three, the church, the church age, and then write what's gonna take place after this, metatauta, after these things. In Revelation chapter one through three, the word church appears 19 times. So it's, it's pretty prevalent, right? And you know in the first three chapters, wow, this is to the church, this is for the church, the church needs to hear this, church needs to understand this, but suddenly, unmistakably, after these things, the church is gone. Why do I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture? Because the church does not appear after these things. In fact, the church is completely absent, not used a single time until the very last chapter of the book. From chapters four through chapter 22, you do not see the church. There is no, with the exception of in chapter 19, you see the bride. That's the first hint, the first indication of the church right there. Chapters four through 19, where, where, where is the church after these things? Now there's one more thing I'll tell you about the church that it does show up in chapters four and five, but hold that thought. In Revelation 2 and 3, just those two chapters, which are the seven letters to the seven churches, seven times, Jesus says this, Revelation 2, verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He's speaking to the churches. Listen, churches, they're getting these letters. Listen up, pay attention. These letters are for you. And then all of a sudden, chapter 4, verse 1, after these things. So what happens? Suddenly in Revelation four and five, we find John, and I believe the church in heaven. This is something else to be very aware of as you study through Revelation is are you on earth or in heaven? Make sure you know what location is being talked about when you study through the book because John jumps back and forth. And there are times where there is a vision of something taking place in heaven and there's times where it's taking place on the earth. And if you can make that distinction, which by the way is easy, 
then that's very helpful in studying through this book. But look at chapter five, verse nine. Chapters four and five, John is in heaven. The whole of chapters four and five is happening in heaven. Chapter six, we'll be back on earth. But chapter four and five, in heaven, and chapter five, verse nine, and we looked at this chapter on Sunday morning, they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and break its seals for you were, you were slain and purchased, literally the word is redeemed, you redeemed for God with your blood from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made us to be a kingdom and priest to our God and we will reign upon the earth. This is the song of the redeemed. Who sings the song of the redeemed? Redeemed people. So how do you know the church is in heaven? Because redeemed people are singing this song. And I believe that that is us singing the song in heaven. By the way, John also sees 24 elders. Who are the 24 elders? I suggest to you that they represent the redeemed. Why 24? 12 representing the Jewish believers and another 12 representing, as through the apostles, the Gentile believers. Jews and Gentiles, the elders, are there in heaven, but also note this in verse 11 of chapter five. I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. So there are angels and there are living creatures and there are elders but all together, myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands. And so all of these together, I suggest the church is there in heaven, having been caught up. Because of the descriptive picture in Revelation 4, verses one and two. Now, there are those who disagree with me on that. That's fine. But if you look again at Revelation chapter 4, and compare verse one and two here to what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4 about the church being caught up, you have two extremely similar pictures. Personal opinion, just my opinion, but I think John was caught up himself to see the church having been raptured in heaven at a time yet future in Revelation 4 and 5 because everything from chapter four onward is future. Right In the book of Revelation, the things that take place after these things, after the church age, where is the church? In heaven, based on all the other passages and scriptures we've read. So it would follow suit if God is a logical, consistent God, and he is, that suddenly in chapter four, that's where the church would be, in heaven. And then we have this amazing song of the redeemed, and we see the elders there, and we get this sense that, okay, there's myriads and myriads and thousands upon thousands, and they're not just angels, okay, and they're not just living creatures, the elders are there too. And I think we see the church in heaven in chapters four and five. Meanwhile, from heaven to earth. So, so that alone is another uh, picture for us of the church having been caught up. It, it follows suit with all that we've looked at. In Revelation chapter four, suddenly the church age is over of chapters two and three and chapter four, church is in heaven. Okay, are you with me on that? Yeah. All right. So staying with that, um, there's something else that goes on here, and we need to move from now heaven down to earth. As chapter six begins, we're back on earth. And what we find, I'm gonna give this to you as number 11 in our pre-tribulation rapture points. Number 11, the prerogative of the lamb. The prerogative of the lamb. Here's the deal. 
Revelation chapter six roughly spans the first three and a half years of the tribulation. This is what's happening in the first half. Remember Daniel, now this is why we did Daniel last week instead of doing Revelation first. Remember Daniel tells us there are seven years left. Seven years, Jeremiah calls the time of Jacob's distress. Seven years left on God's clock, seven years specifically dealing with his people Israel, but also he's gonna be pouring out his wrath on this Christ-rejecting world. Seven years, first three and a half years take place in Revelation chapter six. Chapter seven begins with an interlude which heralds the final 42 months or 1260 days or three and a half years that Jesus calls the great tribulation. We talked about this in Matthew 24. I hope you're getting that all of this is building and it's part of a larger package of understanding about this pre-tribulation rapture. Jesus refers to the great tribulation in Matthew 24, 21. And then we see in Revelation chapter two, verse 22, and in Revelation chapter seven, verse 14, we also see this great tribulation and these last three and a half years are referred to. Both the mid-tribulation and pre-wrath views teach that Revelation chapter six is not yet the wrath of God, okay? Mid-trib says that we are here all the way through the midpoint, but the wrath of God really isn't poured out yet, so we get caught up in the middle of this seven-year period. Pre-wrath, as we talked about, says it's gonna be after that, maybe four or five years into the seven-year tribulation, but we'll be caught up pre-wrath. And I remind you, the pre-wrath perspective came out in the 70s and was really popularized in the 90s, so it is a very recent perspective I like what John Corson says, if if it's new, it probably isn't true. (laughs) Anyway, but this all assumes that no wrath has taken place and we get caught up pre-wrath. Well, if you read chapter six, yeah, four immediate problems with this idea that the church is not caught up until the midpoint, that is after Revelation chapter six, at the midpoint or, or even later. Four problems, number one, it doesn't follow the flow. And that is the church, the church, the church, the church, the church until the end of chapter three and then after these things, the church is not mentioned. There are hints throughout chapters four and five that the church is there in heaven, but the church is certainly not mentioned on earth another time. And then you get to chapter six, this doesn't account for this time frame, all seven years being the time of Jacob's distress, right? The time of Jacob's distress is not three and a half years. It's all seven. It's the whole tribulation, of which chapter six is the first half. It doesn't account for, again, the sudden absent church, and it fails to recognize, most importantly, the prerogative of the lamb, that is, who is the one who is releasing the wrath that is discussed in chapter six. And I'm not gonna read the whole chapter, but if you just look at the, the, the points, the headings, you got a rider on a white horse. This is the first seal. Who's breaking the seal? The lamb is, Jesus is. So Jesus is in control of everything taking place in chapter six. Jesus, you could say, is the one who is administrating what's happening in chapter six. So he breaks a seal, and in the breaking of the first seal, you see this white rider on a white horse, rider on a white horse who is the Antichrist. 
And I wish I had more time to talk about why, but this is Antichrist who comes riding in. I'll give you this much. He's wearing a crown, but the word crown there is stephanos, which is a, a leafy crown that rots and falls and dies. It's not the diademos, the diadem that we see Jesus wearing later on. It's a stephanos. It's like a little crown they give someone who just won a race. And he's wearing that and he's riding in. And then you have to look at, well, who follows this rider? Because this rider is not Jesus because he is followed then by war in verse three, famine in verse five, death in verse seven, martyrdom in verse nine, terror in verse 12. These are all, this, this follows this rider and all this stuff coming, coming down in the first three and a half years. My friends, this is not gonna be a good time to be on the earth. This is a time where there is indeed wrath and the breaking of the seals. Jesus breaks the seals in verse one, three, five, seven, nine, and 12. And then finally in chapter eight, verse one, it says, when the lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. It's just like now all of a sudden, shh, something's going on. Chapter seven, by the way, is an interlude where we see some other things that are being dealt with and referred to relating to what has happened in the first three and a half years of the tribulation. But Revelation chapter six, verse 15, note this. The kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man, and by the way, at this point, we're talking about primarily non-believers. We're at least talking about people who missed the rapture because they did not believe. Okay, now maybe some of them are coming to faith now. We know masses of people will. But they hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains and they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? What are these guys talking about? The wrath of the lamb. The first three and a half years. And what I'm telling you here is in chapter six, there may be people who have a mid-tribulation perspective or a pre-wrath perspective who say, chapter six really isn't wrath. Well, I'll tell you what, the people living on planet Earth at the time call it the wrath of the Lamb. They know it's wrath. It very clearly is a wrath that is being poured out. Even the rebellious know that much. And again, I remind you that 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10 says, we wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Someone still might say, yeah, but it's not the wrath of God, it's the wrath of the lamb, to which I then ask, you know, that doesn't sound like the one who saves us from wrath, will first have us suffer through his wrath. Does that make any sense to anyone? And it does not fit the flow of the book of Revelation. And let me just ask you, does anyone want to be around for the chapter six happenings? Does that look like fun to you? Hey, I don't know, war, famine, death, <laughs> martyrdom? <laughs> Sign me up. This is the wrath of the Lamb. The lamb is not going to take his people through his own wrath only then to deliver us from the wrath of God. The lamb is God, right? So the prerogative of the lamb is another indication that he rescues us from wrath, takes us out before wrath takes place. Anyway, I gotta side note this. I've said this a few times, but it keeps coming up. 
And it's, it's a bit frustrating to me that there are those who say, you pre-tribulation people are just so excited about the world going into wrath. No, we're not. That, that does not excite me in the least. Being with Jesus, yes, that excites me. A holy honeymoon for seven years with Jesus in heaven, absolutely can't wait. Being raptured, wonderful. People in distress and tribulation and going through the wrath, I don't want that for anyone. Guess what? Neither does God. Which is why he's given this to us now. Which is why for 6,000 years God has given warning because he doesn't want anybody to go into it. Well, why are people gonna go into it then? Because of rebellion. Because people will be rebellious, are rebellious right now to the Lord. That's not God's desire for anyone. You think he wants people to die in their sins? No. If he wanted people to die in their sins and be lost for eternity, Jesus never would have come to the planet. But Jesus came and died on the cross and took the weight of the entirety of our sin on himself because that's God's desire. Let me save you. I'll take the heat. I'll take the wrath on the cross so that you don't have to take the wrath. But the reality is the wrath is coming. I was thinking about this earlier today that the first time we ever took a tour to Israel, took a group with us to Israel, we had a, a tour guide named Elon. Elon was a really knowledgeable, really good tour guide. He was excellent. And I'll never forget being up on the hillside of Mount Megiddo, looking over the valley of Megiddo, and we chose kind of at that point to do some prophecy study. We opened up the Bible, and I was talking about what was coming, and I was basically describing Armageddon from the book of Revelation, saying, look at the valley of Megiddo. It is huge. It's one of those things in Israel. When you see the valley of Megiddo, it's bigger than you can imagine. A lot of things in Israel are smaller than you imagine, like the Jordan River. But the Valley of Megiddo is massive. And you sit there and you look out, so we're having this prophecy study and, and everybody, you know, these, these people from our fellowship and they're all asking questions about, you know, what's gonna happen and who's gonna, be, who's gonna be left behind and what about the Jewish people? Well, Elon's standing right there. And I'll tell you what, it is one thing to talk to a bunch of Christians about being caught up and not being here and, and even to read Zechariah 13 and talk about the fact that two-thirds of all Israel is gonna perish and only one third is gonna make it through. It's one thing for us to talk about that. It's another thing to be standing there with a Jewish man who does not believe Jesus has come yet or Messiah has come. And that really spun me around. Because prior to that, as a student of all these things, I got, I got so excited. I'm like, whoa, yeah, you know, and if there was an earthquake somewhere, I go, oh, birth pang, birth pang. <laughs> Until I realized, wait a minute, wait a minute, the impact of these birth pangs for us, we're gonna be caught up in joy. But the birth pangs are leading to a very painful period of time on this earth. This goes to our compassion in wanting to see people saved. I am not excited about the wrath and judgment part of what is talked about. And in fact, when we study through, and we will, Revelation 6 through 19, it's some of the toughest, most difficult study, not in terms of understanding, but just in terms of realizing what's gonna take place on this earth. And it should be painful for us. You know, I, I mean, do I apologize for this ahead of time? No, I don't think so. We should feel the pain of loss for people we love who right now stand in rebellion. We should. I, I, I think that's a burden that as Christians we are called to bear. We need to feel that. If we don't feel that, we don't care. 
But if we know what's coming, then of course we care. So the pattern of, go back to the pattern of Revelation. Write the things which you have seen. Jesus in the midst of the seven lampstands, which again, he himself explains is a picture of the seven churches. Jesus is there. Write the things which are, that's the church age, both then and now, Revelation two and three. Write the things which will take place after these things. So here's the rest of an outline if you'd like one for Revelation. Chapters four and five is the heavenly vision. That is the vision of, of the throne room and I believe the church is there. Chapters six through 18, an earthly tribulation and the church is completely absent. So again, remember, during that period of time, not once in the book of Revelation is the church even mentioned, not a single time. And then we come to, well, look at Revelation 13, verse nine. So you're into now the last half of the tribulation as the beast from the sea rises, that's gonna be Antichrist and, and reveals himself for who he is and things are really starting to break loose in the, what Jesus refers to now as the great tribulation. And look at verse nine, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. What's missing? If anyone has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. The spirit is missing and the churches are missing. So even the phrase that was so prevalent seven times in chapters two and three, if anyone has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church or what the Spirit says to the churches. Suddenly now, if anyone has an ear, let him hear silence because the Spirit and the church are not here. This is a huge, to me, a huge proof of the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. We are not present at this time. And then chapter 19, after we go through chapter six through 18, chapter 19 is the return of the king. And guess what? In chapter 19, so cool, the church is with him. We return with Jesus. This was one of my favorite aha moments, I think, in my faith walk. And it was about 23 years ago when it hit me. And Cheryl may even remember the time because I couldn't stop talking about it. Wait a minute, we go home in the rapture and then we come back with him. The saints come back. You know, we, we ride along. You see this, that the bride in verse seven has made herself ready. It was given to clothe her. This is Revelation 19, verses seven and eight. It was given to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then you skip on down to, oh, let's go to verse 14. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. What army dresses in fine linen, white, and clean? <laughs> what army dresses in wedding clothes? These are the wedding clothes of verse eight. Now we see on these who are following him in verse 14 on white horses. And by the way, there are numerous other verses. Jude 14 comes to mind of the holy ones that he comes followed by many thousands of his holy ones. The word is hagios, saints, that we come back with him. So Revelation 19 is awesome because not only does it speak of the marriage feast of the Lamb, but it speaks, of the, it speaks of the return of the king, chapter 19, and all of his saints come back with him. To do what? What John said in chapter one and chapter five. To rule and reign with him on the earth in the millennial kingdom. 
So we return with Jesus, chapter 19. Chapter 20 talks about the millennial kingdom. That is the church reigning with him. And then at the end of chapter 20, and by the way, six times in chapter 20, we're told it's a 1,000 years. Not once, not twice, six times. Six being the number of a man, and I think it's trying to get it in to the brain of humanity, that it's gonna be a 1,000 years that Jesus rules and reigns from Jerusalem on the earth and we with him in the millennial kingdom. At the end of that comes the great throne judgment. By the way, just a quick mental note. I know I'm just chucking a lot of stuff at you tonight. Mental note. The earth and all its works are, are, are burned up by fire, Peter says. Does anyone know when that happens? That is after the millennial kingdom, not before. It is after. And actually, if you look at Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, I saw a great white throne with him who sat on it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I suggest right there is when the earth and its works are burned up with fire and done. So we're all gathered to the throne for the final judgment, not judgment of believers. Remember, you've already been raptured, caught up in your glorified body. But a final judgment of all those who want to be judged based on their deeds. And while that takes place, heaven and earth, as we know it, are destroyed. To make way for chapters 21 and 22, new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, where we live with Jesus into eternity. And that's the book of Revelation. So I know that's a cursory glance, kind of an outline, but Revelation 22, verse 16, all of a sudden, for the first time since chapter three, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches, and there's the word again, that has been absent throughout the entire description of the tribulation from chapter six through chapter 19. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star, verse 16 of Revelation 22. And then he says, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. And this is the first time again that the church is mentioned since chapter three. Well, that's, that's very telling. I'm not a rocket scientist and you don't have to be to figure that one out. The church is not in the tribulation. Therefore, comfort one another with these words because they're supposed to be comforting and encouraging. And what about, Rick, you were saying there should be a burden for us for people who might be left behind. Yeah, right now it should be. We take great comfort in knowing God's got me. God's got my salvation taken care of. God's got the, I don't even have to pack I'm just gonna go when he says it's time and and it's all good and he even provides me with the wedding clothes so I'm good to go. I don't have to worry about me but I should be concerned about everybody else. Absolutely. I've called this over the years the divine tension between the joy of being caught up and the sorrow of those who are at, at this point rejecting Jesus. There should be a tension there that keeps my, my eyes looking for Jesus and my heart to the lost. And both are vital aspects of, I think, a legitimate eschatology or end times perspective. But there is that uncomfortable reality. So let me look, let me end with this part for tonight. Um, I mentioned in a previous study, Jesus gives a sober warning to the church. 
And in the final four letters, so go back to Revelation chapter two, in the final four letters, Jesus specifically refers to both the tribulation and the rapture. So this is, this is why I said seven letters. The first three are, you can, you can look at not only are, were they historical churches in the first century, but they speak of three different um, ages or, or aspects of the church in the church age no longer existent now. But the last four, from Thyatira all the way to Laodicea, are all in the world today by description. They all exist today, and part of how we know that is all four letters refer to that church being on the earth or being related to the rapture or the tribulation. So watch this, Revelation chapter two, verse 22. Talking to the church at Thyatira, continual sacrifice, 606 to the present. Verse 22, behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Look, this is a church he's talking to. He starts off saying to Thyatira back in verse 19, I know your deeds and your love and your faith and your service. Boy, who serves more than the Catholic church? I know all this that you do, your faith, your perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first, but I have this against you. You tolerate the woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. This is the idolatrous church. And what Jesus says to the idolatrous church, now please hear me clearly, I'm not saying he's saying this to all people who call themselves Catholic. But to the organization that would be this group of people, this church, the idolatrous church, he says, you repent of this idolatry or you will go into great tribulation. That is, they will not be caught up. Now, I hope you heard me clearly. I'm not saying no Catholics will be caught up. God knows the heart. How do we get caught up? By faith in Jesus Christ, period. That's where my faith is. That's where my love is. No worries. But, the organization as a whole, he gives a very stern warning, you need to repent of your deeds or you will go into great tribulation. That's Thyatira. How about Sardis, chapter three, verse three? Remember, these are letters to the churches, so he's speaking to Christians. And in verse three of chapter three, Sardis, he says, remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I come to you. That's the rapture. He is actually saying to a people of a, per, a, a specific perspective that if you don't wake up out of your doldrums, you will miss the rapture of the church. How do we know Sardis is denominationalism? Well, it's really interesting. He says, um, I know you say that you have a name. Verse one, I know your deeds and that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. The word name is onoma, which is where we get the word denomination. And this is, again, this is, are the are, are denominations, and I'm not trying to be judgmental, I'm really not. I, I'm just trying to get the explanation across here. Are denominations thriving right now in the world? I, see, I don't see that they are. What I'm seeing from, from my perspective is people leaving denominationalism in droves that the, the old school perspective 
which is if you are a Methodist, you're good to go. Doesn't work anymore, not with this generation. Millennials and Gen Zers, they don't care what the tradition was. They're not going to church based on tradition, the vast majority. If they are showing up at church, it's because they're seeking the truth. They wanna hear what, what, what's, you know, what, what God's word actually says. And again, I'm not saying this to be anti-denominational. Again, if your faith is in Jesus, that's where your salvation lies. But Jesus is talking to this segment of the church and he says, you better wake up because if you're asleep in the pews, I will come like a thief in the night and you won't even know it happened. And so yes, I do believe there are gonna be people showing up at church on Sunday morning after the rapture has taken place wondering where everybody is. i put it to you this way, going to church, you've probably heard this before. Going to McDonald's does not make you, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger, right? Just showing up, that's not, that's not the deal. It's your heart. It's your faith in Jesus Christ. If your faith is in Jesus, good, praise God, he'll catch you up. But if you're asleep at the pew, Jesus gives a very serious warning. And then look over at verse 15 of chapter three. Now he's speaking to Laodicea, the church of the people's rights the church that does what the people want to do, the church where people put their own rights ahead of the commandments of God. I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Sounds to me like a group of people who are not gonna go with the rapture because they're lukewarm. There's no passion there. I found it very interesting over the years that people who are cold to Christianity are far easier to introduce to Jesus and and see turn hot than those who are lukewarm. Because the lukewarm are fine. I don't need anything. I go to church on Easter. You know, I'm there occasionally. It's it's, it's fine. Don't don't get all up in my face about faith and commitment and all that stuff. I'm fine. Jesus is gonna spit you out. These segments of the church, based on Jesus' own words, will go into the tribulation. And it speaks to those whose lifestyles are incompatible with a relationship with Jesus Christ, those who trade out faith and repentance for formality and religion, and those who are blasé and lifeless in their churchianity. There is only one guaranteed to be caught up, and that's Philly. Verse 10 of chapter three, speaking to Philadelphia, Jesus says, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. That's the rapture. A promise direct from Jesus that he will keep you from the wrath that is to come. And and it's interesting, we've been talking about this pre pre-tribulation uh, rapture, mid-trib, pre-wrath, post-tribulation, all that stuff. Well, Jesus says, I'm gonna keep, take, take you, keep you from the hour of testing that which is about to come upon the whole world. He doesn't say I'm gonna take you out about halfway through the hour of testing. I will keep you after the first half hour and then I'll catch you. No, I'm gonna keep you from this that will affect the whole world. And again, based on our reading, Revelation chapter six, that's worldwide. That is global wrath, the wrath of the lamb that's taking 
uh, place there. So Philadelphia, this is, this is, see, you can take this, A, either as a, as a church group or a segment of the church, you can also take it very personally. That Christians who are idolatrous are in serious trouble of going into the tribulation. That Christians who are dead or sound asleep are in serious trouble of going into the tribulation. That Christians who are lukewarm are in serious trouble of going into the tribulation. And Christians who are keeping the word of his perseverance are going to be caught up. So I, I, I just take it personally. If you're concerned about any of the other things, be Philadelphia. You be Philadelphia. And, and man, make some noise at your church if you feel like your church is not being Philadelphia. Why was he not caught up? Hebrews 11.5 says, by faith, Enoch was taken up so he would not see death. Hebrews 11.6, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. And what Jesus is calling for here is faith. Trust me, believe in me, look for me, and I got you. What happens to those in the church without faith? Well, again, they may be seated. They may consider themselves part of a tradition or a denomination, but that is not anywhere in the Bible as to what saves you. What saves you is faith in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So what we have from Jesus in these seven letters is a loving warning, specifically to religious Thyatira, dead Sardis, lukewarm Laodicea, that church cannot save you. If you're Catholic or have a Catholic background, you know this. Catholicism teaches the church saves you. The Bible does not say that the church saves you. You become a part of the church because you have been saved. The Lord adds to the church daily those who are being saved. Acts chapter two is very clear. So it's the grace of God that saves us. You've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one can boast. Last rapture precedent from the revelation Skip over and look at Revelation chapter 12, verse five. I've been hinting at this one for the last several weeks. Revelation 12, five. Which says that she, and she here is not Mary. She is Israel. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That is very clearly Messiah. That's Jesus. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the word caught up is harpazo, raptured. Jesus was raptured. And I, again, hinted at this several weeks ago, but the implications are huge that Jesus was raptured. And so will you be. And listen to what Paul says. I'll finish here. Romans chapter six, verse five. He says, if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, surely we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, we have, if we have died with Christ, by the way, if you are a follower of Jesus tonight, you died with Christ, right? Whether you die a physical death or not, you already, you already went through the death of the old man, the old woman, you were born again. 
if we have died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Paul says, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And you will, in the likeness of Christ Jesus, be raptured even as Jesus himself was caught up. Amen? Amen. All right. Questions? Jackie. Oh, yeah, we really need to do that. I'm sorry, Jackie. For you to see how much you matter to us? Here you go. Jake's gonna get his workout, and we're gonna, so you can hear what is, is being asked here. See you, Kyle and Vicki. <laughs> yeah, and by the way, you're not, you're not trapped. When we do Q&A, you're welcome to stay. If, if you have to go, I hesitate to say go because it's half of you going. <laughs> <laughs> Just a few more minutes. Yeah, so Jackie. We're in heaven in chapter five, and are, are we, do, do we witness like uh, the half hour of silence and everything that takes place? Are we, are we there? Are we witnessing that? I think so. I mean, there's no reason why we wouldn't witness that. Um, all the things, again, when, you, when you're in the book of Revelation studying, if you're in heaven, make sure you know you're in heaven, and if it's happening on earth, make sure you understand it's happening on earth. I don't think, my personal opinion, I don't think we're gonna be watching what's happening on earth. I think we're gonna be enamored with Jesus. And we will be in heaven. So yes, the things that are described as happening in heaven during that time frame, I think we will witness and see and just be in awe, overwhelmed by. Yeah. Next question, anyone? Here and then here. You can do it on your way. So in chapter 3, when you talk about the Church of Sardis, you say it's the denominationalism, and well, I agree with you that you don't have to be part of a particular denomination to be saved. It's a matter of the hearts. I would argue that there are denominations that are true born-again believers, and denominationalism is a very large umbrella. There's so many of them, I'm just not sure we can put the entire umbrella under the Church of Sardis. Well, and what I would say to you about that, you know, we are talking generally about large swaths of the church and, and, and chronologically going through the church age, we know when Thyatira began to emerge. So we know when Catholicism emerged. And, and there are many things in the letter to Thyatira, so hold that thought, many things in that letter that speak directly of Catholicism. So you look at it and go, that looks like the Catholic Church that he's talking to. You get to Sardis, and it looks very much like those who broke away from Catholicism, which is Protestantism, which leads to denominationalism. Again, the onoma. You have a name, but you're alive, but you're dead, is what he says. Now, my answer to you is I know, I know many really, really faithful, fiery Baptists. I know many faithful, fiery Methodists. I know faithful, fiery uh, people of the, of the AOG church. I mean, you can go through all these different denominations, and, and I'm, not, I'm not saying that, hey, if you go to a denominational church, you're in big trouble. I'm saying if you go to a denominational church, just make sure you're alive for Jesus. Don't be asleep in the pew. It doesn't matter where you go to church. And the Bridge Christian Fellowship, by the way, could fit in any one of those last four letters, depending on the person. I don't want us to be anything other than Philadelphia, but I'm not even saying we are Philadelphia. At times, we have been Laodicea. 
And at times, we have been Sardis. I don't think we've ever been Thyatira, but I'll tell you what. If we, as we take communion together, if we start to worship the bread and the, and the juice, we're in trouble of being Thyatira. It's what they represent. So in all this, again, it comes down to a matter of the heart. And when Jesus begins giving us these letters, he is, why does he say what he says? Uh, he says, those, verse 19 of chapter three, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. So he's saying that to the lukewarm Christian. He's saying that to the denominational Christian who thinks by being a member of this particular, I'll just say this Baptist church, I'm a good Baptist. Well, being a good Baptist is not your entry ticket into heaven. Being a lover of Jesus is, right? So what church I attend is irrelevant in terms of me being caught up. My love and relationship with Jesus is what's relevant to being caught up. Yeah, thank that you. clarify? Yes. Good, okay, yeah. I am, and I am not anti-denomination. The Bridge Christian Fellowship is just an independent church I'm not opposed to. You know, anyone who claims Jesus is Lord. I have always had this question and it's never been explained to me very well. And that is, it is to the angel of the church and then each of the churches. What's that all about? Okay, the word angel in the Greek is messenger. So there are two possible answers to that. One, very simply, every church has an angel, which would be really cool. You know, we have our angel and he's sitting, you know, right by, actually right by Doug. We don't even see his chair. He's just right. I'm not talking about your wife. Look at that. He pats her. Oh, honey. She's a darling, but she is not an angel. <laughs> so it, it could mean literally that each church has an angel that is assigned every fellowship. That's possible. What I really think it means, because these letters are being written by John and sent directly to churches, and I, th I think it's talking about the pastors, that every church has a messenger, every church has a leader, and that these letters would go to the angels, of the, the pastors of the seven churches. And I'm not saying pastors are angels. But if, you're, if you take the meaning of the word angelos in the Greek as messenger, then a pastor of a church is a messenger to that church. Is, is a mouthpiece to the church, right? So those are the only two, uh, I think, possibilities that make any sense outside of that. You start to get weird. So either every church has literally a servant of God, angelos, or every church has a pastor, and the pastors would then receive these letters and be responsible. Maybe both. I'll, I'll take both. But it doesn't say angels plural to the angel of the church at Sardis, right? And it's singular, so... And it would be weird, too, if, if it's not pastors or leaders of that church, it would be weird for Jesus to have John write this down and then hand it over to an angel. How's he gonna do that? But to... He's exiled on he is, but if he's gonna have it delivered... He, he, and he's released from Patmos. So he's able to circulate the revelation, but he would circulate it, passing it off to the angelos of each church which would be a pastor or a leader. I mean, that just makes sense to me. So. so I don't know if I just joined the entire camp of those who did not explain it to you well, but you know, there we are. Anyone else, any other questions? I, I was handed some questions and I think I can do this like super fast, um, but this was tucked under my door and 
let, let me real quickly, uh, the question is, I mean, literally, I can do this in a couple of minutes. Revelation 22, verse 12 says, to render to every man according to what he has done. At this point, Revelation 22, hasn't the great white throne judgment happened already? Is this just a statement said to John as he is watching the events unfold where Jesus states his plan and purpose for the end? The reason why at the end of the book, Revelation 22, verse 12, it says that, uh, behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to everyone according to what he's done. Jesus is now talking to the whole church. So this is now, we're in the conclusion of the revelation where Jesus is wrapping this up and saying, okay, now, John, you need to tell this to the church. The church is gonna be hearing this for 2,000 years. I am coming quickly, church. Okay, um, so that's not in the chronology. This is at the end where now the purpose of the, old, the, of the letter is coming back around. Revelation 22, verse two, what is the purpose of leaves for healing the nations if in Revelation 21, four, John says Jesus will wipe every tear from their eyes in the new heaven, new earth, and there will no longer be any death, mourning, crying, or pain that the first things have passed away. What needs to be healed? That is a great question. And I invite you to come back to the Revelation study when we do that. And I'll, no, I won't do that to you. <laughs> the leaves are for the healing of the nations. So that's two possibilities. One is at the outset um, that there is healing that takes place. The word healing is interesting. It's pharmakia. Pharmakia also, uh, it doesn't necessarily only mean healing. It also means, oh, what do we call it? Um, rejuvenation. Um, I, I would look at it like vitamins, you know? I, there's something there. Yes, the first order has passed away. New heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. There's no more death, no more crying, no more pain, none of that. No more knee surgeries, you know, all those things. But there's still something where God gives us that is that that word pharmakia describes. And it's not drugs, not that aspect of it. It's more like um, remedy. It's like, like I said, like vitamins. Like there, there's something to that that will be, this, this is out beyond life now, right? So what, what do we need these leaves for? Well, they're going to be, along with the fruit that we get to eat, we won't have to eat, but we get to eat, which I love the sound of that. <laughs> but that's, so, and I looked, at the, I looked this up before and, and I'm not giving you my best answer. But there's something about the leaves that will, it's not for sickness and death, but it, it is for just health and vitality. And I understand that the question then might be, well, okay, but if we're in a glorified body, what do we need health and vitality for? I don't know. I just know the leaves are there for healing if you need it, so. Because it tastes good. <laughs> um, then the, the next question was, uh, people, believe, um, people that become believers during the tribulation that survive to the very end, and then therefore they will enter the kingdom, will they still have the ability to have kids? Yes. And Isaiah is very clear about this. There will be children born in the thousand year reign of Christ. In the millennial kingdom on the earth, there will be human beings having children, and those children will grow some could be born in the early years, first decade of the millennial kingdom and live the whole time. Um, but yeah, the Bible says that there are human beings on earth bearing, having kids, populating the earth again, which is why we're needed to rule and reign with Jesus because there will be a population throughout the world that, that needs that. Um, 
And then if they die in the, during the, let's see, if you come out of the tribulation and live as a believer through the whole millennial kingdom, do you receive your immortal body at the end of the millennial kingdom? And I would assume yes. But that's not specifically addressed. At that point, other than to say in Revelation 20 at the great throne judgment, books are opened. The book of life is opened and books. And the books are books of deeds. So I would assume the book of life is open because there are those who during the millennial kingdom are born, raised, and come to faith in Jesus and at the throne judgment, they're in the book of life. So I would assume that at that point that they receive their glorified body, but the Bible doesn't specifically address it. Maybe that's what the leaves are for. That's an, in, that's an interesting thought, that the leaves for the healing of the nations, they would need to eat the leaves to be. I don't know how God's gonna do that. That's, that's an interesting thought. All right. Um, I'm gonna skip a couple of these and maybe come back to them. Zechariah 14, 12 talks about the plague that will happen where they're standing on their feet and their tongues melt in their mouths and their eyeballs melt out and it sounds like a nuclear bomb. The question is, is it a nuclear bomb, biological, chemical warfare? Any ideas? Does scripture have any other clues? Uh, no. <laughs> it's gonna happen. Will it be supernatural? Or will it be, um, who wrote Late Great Planet Earth? Yeah, Hal Lindsey in the Late Great Planet Earth goes through and gives all these very interesting literal interpretations. Like he would say that's a nuclear wind, it's a nuclear bomb. And then you see in the tribulation a nuclear winter that is actually following that. It's entirely possible. Main thing we have to recognize is when the wrath of God is being poured out, he is the one in charge. So it is his wrath. This is not, oh no, a bomb went off. This is no, God caused this because it's his wrath being poured out. Um, let me see. Zechariah 14, eight, talking about the living waters flowing to the east and to the west says it will be in summer as well as in winter. Is this calendar Wise or weather-wise, will we know the season because of a calendar? Oh, look, it's December. Or because of the weather outside, cold or warmer, will the new heaven, new earth have seasons? I suppose there will be some kind of way to at least mark the months. And I would agree. Yeah, I mean, because everything the Bible describes for the new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem indicates this is going to happen. So if it's gonna be the same in summer as it is in winter, then I would assume there will be a summer and a winter in the new heaven and new earth which is really interesting. Um, God is a creative God. I think there will be things, aspects of life as we know it now in the new earth. There's gonna be something. Why is it even called a new earth if it's not a new version of the old? There's gonna be stuff that's similar, I would think. So again, but that's, the Bible says it, so I say, yeah, I assume it. Yes, question over here, Jake. Do you have a the mic? But the people on the live stream want to hear your beautiful voice, bro. So you just mentioned during the thousand years that children will be born. Well, you're also saying that there will be husbands and wives. So people who have been married twice, will you have two wives then? Or if they're partnered? No, so I don't. how does that work? No, I wouldn't, th I wouldn't think so. What, what, how, why married twice? Well, I'm talking about if you had a wife and she passed away. Right. Okay. And then she joins you, but you get remarried. And then she joins you. Who joins you in a thousand years, though? 
year. Okay, so let's be really clear. The thousand-year reign, we, okay, if you are raptured, you're in your glorified eternal state. So even when you, and there's no marriage in the resurrection. So Jesus said that. We're, we're not given in marriage in the resurrection. So once we're raptured, sorry, honey. Um, I, I heard someone mention this just this last week, and I really love it. If you think, think about your most wonderful marital moment that was just, everything was just, the reason why you got married, it's gonna be better. Amen. You know, in our eternal state, our relationships together will be better than that. But we're not married. So we come back with Jesus. We are now functioning glorified in our eternal bodies. We are ruling and reigning with him, but we're not interacting with human beings like, Husband comes back and oh, there's my wife, and they get that's you, so there's it's separate. Those who survive the tribulation period on the earth and at the end of the tribulation have faith in Jesus, came to faith and somehow survived, and we know at least a third of Israel will. Whether there will be other Gentiles is likely too. They will enter into the kingdom, which is that kingdom age on the earth, still human. They will meet and marry and have children and so on. Does that make sense? Okay. So I answered your question? Okay. It's some, it can be confusing. I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. I went, but I'm, but I'm back here, but you're not, you're not in your human form anymore. You're glorified. So it's two different groups that are gonna be on the, on the earth at the time. You're probably gonna get to this question later, but then what is the point of ending that thousand-year reign and letting Satan come out again? Great question. So that's the end of... Uh, Revelation 20, um, when the thousand years are completed. It's really popping the balloon there. Huh? It's popping the balloon? Yeah. I, you know, I just cannot wait to watch you and Jesus talk. It's going to be so fun, Corinne. <laughs> Verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. Why? I, I think there's one reason for that. Choice. Because people who live in the thousand-year reign, the millennial kingdom, will still have free will, but that free will is going to be ruled by righteousness with the person of Jesus Christ himself on the earth, the entirety of the church who are ruling and reigning with him. Satan is bound. There is no demonic activity. It's going to be as close to a paradise on earth as you possibly can imagine in the millennial kingdom. And at the end of that, Satan is released. Why? Those people have to make a choice and have the opportunity to decide, do I really wanna go on into eternity with Jesus or not? And Satan is that alternative. It's the same reason I believe that God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden in the first place. If he hadn't done it, Adam and Eve never would have sinned because there would be no choice. Do we know that time frame of, of testing for those people? I think very, very short. When thousand years are released, completed, Satan will be released from his prison, will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, which by the way is not, that's not the Ezekiel, Gog and Magog. This is a reference to that, to a similarity to it. But it says to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And what that tells you is that's how, that's how rebellious the heart of man is. Even in the presence of of Jesus and perfect righteousness, people will still rebel. You ever wonder why? I've done everything for these kids of mine and they still rebel against me. I've given them everything and they still 
you know? They have a choice, and these will have a choice. So it, it could literally be like a thousand years, two thousand years of test. I mean, you know, no, I see. Frame. I don't. My assumption, because it's it's mentioned to let us know, yes, this is going to happen. Uh, they came up on the broad plain of the earth, surrounded the cabin of the saints in the beloved city. Fire came down from heaven and devoured them. It's over. So Scripture devotes so little time to what happens. My assumption is it's very short. It's not gonna be another thousand year war. Jesus wouldn't have that. So there will be the rebellion, weeks, I don't know, a few months, this takes place, it's put down, and we go straight to the great throne judgment, okay? I mean, it's the best answer that I can give based on the scripture, God, all love must give a choice. And where there is no choice, then it really isn't love. You know, when I have nothing to choose from because everything's just perfect, then am I really choosing to love him? So I've said before, there's not gonna be a single person in heaven who can say, I'm here because I lived a pretty good life. I'm here by the grace of God alone. That's it. It's the only reason any of us are saved. about unborn children then who have not had the opportunity to make choice. Do you think in the millennium perhaps they will have that opportunity to be born, to have that choice? Oh, you're talking about like uh, children who have been aborted, aborted or yeah, children yeah. who have died in the womb or yeah. all, up, up to this point? Right. What about because all of them? Because they've never had the opportunity to accept or reject. I'm, I'm going to refer you to Jesus on that one. <laughs> uh, because no, I, I again, God... I'm gonna say it this way and it's gonna freak someone out, I know it, but it, it's true. God is pro-choice. God is not pro-abortion, but he is pro-choice in that he has given all of us the right to choose or reject him. He wants us to choose him, but he wants that choice to be ours. And so what about all those? You know, that's, that's a really interesting question and I, I just, I don't have a direct answer. He may he could bring them back during the millennial kingdom or he could just grace them with salvation. I don't know. I don't know. Jake? I, the only thing that comes to mind is when David is mourning his, the illegitimate birth of this son. Yeah, Doug's already shaking his head. He knows what I'm talking about. And once he gets word that his child has died, he cleans up, stops mourning and fasting, and they're like, wait a minute, now you should mourn. And he goes, I'm going to paraphrase he can't come to me, but I will go to him. So to me, I, I think that is a, maybe the clearest indication we get of what happens to children in that situation. Yeah, and in that case, perhaps that is the grace of God that he will simply, anyone who has been robbed of the right to even have a life here is just given life. You know, let me, and, and we'll get to you, Leanne. Let me remind you again, and I say this over and over, but I, I, do, it so be, I do so because this is the way I think and this has helped me so much, anytime I'm confused about something, I have to go back to the character of Jesus, the character of God. You know, the, the, the pets question. Well, I don't know. I don't have an answer to what's gonna happen to our pets. We have a fish at home that would be in trouble if someone wasn't there to shake the little food in there. I don't know what's gonna happen to the pets, but I know Jesus. I know God. And I know we will all say righteous and true are all 
your judgments. By the way, that's every one of us in here. There's not a one of us who's gonna stand there and go, righteous and true were most of your judgments except what happened to Fluffy. Okay, a few weeks ago, you taught about age of accountability, and in Hebrew scriptures, it was 20. So wouldn't that, whether it's 20 or 13 or whatever it may be, doesn't that include all these babies? Wouldn't they be included in that anyway? Yeah. Yeah, they would if you're not accountable for your actions and aren't aware of. And, and, and let me be really clear, that age 20, I, I didn't say, I don't believe that that is... Absolutely, that's God's age of accountability. But what we said is that's the only age that's given in the Bible where we can say, hmm, maybe so, possibly. But I think it's, the scripture doesn't give a specific age, and I think primarily both to parents but also to kids. Look, make the choice when you're ready to make the choice. Don't say, well, I'll wait until I'm 21. Right, the choice has been taken one way or another. Yeah. So that, that's where I would lean. I'd lean into the grace of God and assume that all those unborn babies are saved, period. And won't have to come back and reprove. Because again, you're not saved by works or by proving yourself. You're saved by grace. And all those kids would have the chance to, they're gonna see Jesus, would have the chance to believe or not, which I think they would believe. Yeah, Sophie. This young lady really quick. So I'm sure you've seen about, heard about the, well, read the Left Behind books. Mm -hmm. So there's a kid version, and I'm not sure if you studied this before, but with the Mark of the Beast, it has one of the kids, it gets forced on them. Do you think that they would still be able to go to heaven if it's forced and they didn't choose it? Or... <laughs> okay, so we're dealing now with fiction. It's a really good fiction, and it's based in truth. And I, I said that back when we first started talking about this, that I actually really liked the Left Behind series and I thought they did a fantastic job of, of giving a fictional account, but just because it's in there doesn't mean it's gonna happen. I first would question whether anyone will be forced to take the mark of the beast. Um, I think people will be lined up. There, I, I think definitely you could say people will be lined up and told take the mark of the beast or die. And they have to make a choice right then. But I think the Bible's very clear that everyone will know that this is, in fact, the mark of the beast. It's not gonna be snuck on us. It's not gonna be injected and we go, oh, what, that was that? It's, you will know. It's his, the number of the beast or his name, and you will, not you. Because I'm assuming you're gonna be with me, right? We're, but they will know that this is aligning with the beast, so I really question even the, the fictional account that some kids, that it was forced on them. However, taking the question as is, um, if something was forced on you that you didn't choose, I don't think it applies. Well, that wouldn't have anything to do with me or the person. Yeah, there is. Right, and what, what Linda was sharing just now for you at home was there is a worship component also of taking the mark of the beast. They take the mark and they worship the beast. So there is clear will and intent and decision to do that as opposed to someone who's forced. You, you can't force faith, you know, and you also can't force someone, you can't force faith away from someone. We all make a choice. Yeah. This is a scripture that has been going through my head the entire time you've been talking. And that is, God is not willing that any be lost, 
but all come to the saving knowledge of his son, Jesus. Amen. Yep. And that's the heart of the Father. God is not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. All believe in Jesus. That's, that's his heart. That's his desire. And that's really what it's all about. And people are starting to make their way out, which is great. We need to finish up here. One more, okay, one more question from Renee. And if you have any other questions, we'll answer more next week. There will be a little more time at the end next week. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. So my question is, once Daniel realized that the 70 years of captivity were about up and he asked God not to delay, did God actually, he shortened the time, right? So can we, that are anxious, apply that to the rapture? Can we, pray not to hasten, can we pray to hasten the day and does it have an impact or is it, I mean, I know there's that last person, but you know what I mean? God knew before time that we would pray for that. Yeah. So maybe he took that into account. I, I think absolutely, Renee. I, you know what? Uh, first of all, I want to I wanna assign a ministry team to go find that last person, <laughs> right? Let's get this done. Um, but it's, it's a great question. So what happened, what she's referring to, Daniel chapter nine, he realized the time was almost up. If you look at the years of the actual captivity, it was supposed to be 70, it wasn't. They, they end up heading back to Judea before the 70 years are up, which is really interesting. And, and you can see this biblically when we, you know, if Lord willing, if we ever get back to Daniel. But Daniel prayed that it would hasten, that the Lord would hasten their return. And apparently, he did. Can we pray that the Lord hastens the day of the rapture of the church? I don't see why we wouldn't pray that. I think absolutely you pray that because even if it doesn't change, I mean, it, you know, the Lord knows the day or the hour. If he has this set fixed point in time that it's not gonna change no matter what, our praying that he hastens the day is aligning us with the day. You know, it, it's setting our hearts to his desire. His desire is to come. I think Jesus wants to come and rapture us more than we wanna be raptured. You know, I think he's 24-7, he's focused on that. So, yes, pray for the hastening of the day and at the same time, that divine tension. As we seek that day, all the more, if there's someone you know who does not know Jesus, tell them about Jesus. Invite them to church. Open the Bible with them. Risk, risk the offense, you know? And I don't mean be rude about or to be a jerk, but man, risk, risk that they may be upset with you because they might not be. They might actually hear you for the first time after 27 times of you trying to get their attention. But this is the reality of where we live and we need to speak clearly the truth of, of what we know is coming. Amen? Amen? Let's pray one more time. We'll let you out of here. Father, thank you so much for your word. And, and again, we study these things and, and they do raise many questions for us. And Lord, by your grace and... <laughs> By your wisdom, there are things that you have not answered. And so first I pray, Father, that we would be content with what you've told us and that we would base what we know to be absolute on what you have said. But then, Father, all of our questions and queries and curiosities, uh, Lord, we just rest those at your feet and ask you to give us peace over those things that we would not strive in trying to understand the things that you have not told us. I know we will understand but for now, help us to be content with the truth of your word. Not afraid, Lord, of the revelation of Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, for the wrath to come in all eternity. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. 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 